Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John Bavan joining us now, the head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. John Bavan, your words. This is a restart, not a recovery. John, what do you mean by that and why is it important? This has been uh, you know, our mantra for the last uh, almost two years now. Uh, and I think that's pretty crucial and important. Uh, we've seen, uh, after stopping the economy for the virus, uh, a restart. We've been uh, in that process for the last few uh, quarters. And it's not a regional recovery. This is not de- determined, guided by the confidence of the consumers. It's not about investment, sentiment, and animal spirit. It's really about like people being back to uh, being able to, to back to their activity, uh, turning on companies. It's about like turning on lights, um, and um, you know that can happen very quickly. Um, that's point number one. And point number two, it's uh, it's a lot easier to uh, restart demand than it is to restart supply. Uh, so that creates mismatch. That's where the inflation is coming from. And that's very, very, very different from the type of inflation we've seen like in 2015 or in other cycles. So uh, the diagnostic here, I think, is pretty crucial for what uh, you make of it. John, John was focused on the restart line. What I zeroed in on on your note is the idea that monetary policy can't simultaneously stabilize inflation and growth. It has to choose between them. Is the Fed, because of its stellar laser focus focus on inflation right now at risk of hiking aggressively into weakness and therefore we're talking in theory about a recession down the line so let, let me just take one thing out of the way just to, to be clear is um you know it's a restart and a recovery and a re- that restart doesn't really need any stimulus uh, i mean it's really about lifting uh you know constraints uh, so on that in, on that front it makes complete sense to try to start normalizing policy. Um, doesn't need that stimulus, and that's uh, in line with what they're starting to do, which uh, you know I think makes complete sense. I think where it becomes uh, you know concerning is when uh, this is motivated uh, or sold as a, an attempt to tame inflation, uh, and that's a completely different thing because uh, this inflation, as I mentioned, is is caused by is really shaped by supply, and we haven't seen that in decades. Uh, really, that kind of environment, and in an environment like this, uh, you know, you have you have a choice. Uh, you need to decide whether you're going to stabilize inflation or growth. Uh, and if you decide to go hard for inflation, it's going to be very costly in terms of growth. You literally have to destroy demand to really tame inflation. So uh, this choice is a lot starker and not warranted, I think, in, at this stage. Jean, do you think that that's where the Fed is going and that we're going to see a material slowdown and even discussion of a recession later this year? I don't think that's where they're going. Uh, if we go by you know, the cumulative rate of, of hikes that they're envisioning until 2024, it's still very muted. Uh, you know, It's going to be the most muted response in history. So that's in line with what you should be doing in a restart, lift the foot off the accelerator, but not hit the brake. Uh, what I'm concerned about, however, is they're not explicitly or, or actively, uh, you know, framing it the way I've, I've just talked about. And so that leaves open the door that it could be interpreted as slamming the brake. And the market is certainly primed to do that. And um, I think this is where we can get for a while, uh, you know, a pretty bumpy ride. But I think ultimately, uh, even if they don't, they were to try to do uh, a slamming the brake, I think they'll be dissuaded pretty uh, quickly. 
Johnny, given the consequences. Are you more comfortable right now looking outside of the US? I've just heard so many concerns from you right now in the last five minutes or so. At the moment, are you more comfortable doing so, looking outside the US? Concern I've expressed, uh, I think, are really near term. So I think if you take a trading perspective, I think this is more concerning, uh, a lot more surprise and so on. Just to be clear, from an investment, longer term investment perspective, uh, I think it's a bumpy ride, but the fundamentals are not really changed. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it's remarkable, and I think we should all remi remind ourselves of that, that, um, you know, people now are expecting markets like five hikes, right? Um, it took only a couple of months to get there from zero or even one. And what changed that? It's not the economic track. It's really like interpretation of what the Fed was, was saying. So I think that interpretation can change. And ultimately, I think this is from a long-term perspective, like still constructive, um, you know, uh, we need to take down risk a bit, but it's constructive even in the U.S., we, uh, we think, um, you know, emerging markets uh, continue to be, uh, you know, an interesting area, an interesting space, um, and, and uh, it's useful to, uh, to look at this area. But within the DM world, no strong preferences for Europe, Japan, or, or the U.S. at this stage. We're kind of overweight, modestly, um, but equally, I guess, at this stage. Uh, I, think, I think it's shaped by this, uh, this restart across the globe. Jean, really interesting, as always, sir. Jean Bavin there of the BlackRock Investment Institute. Sarah Malik joining us now, Chief Investment Officer at Newfeed. Sarah, let's talk about this equity market. You came into 22. You like the energy story. You and I talked about it quite a lot through last year. It's delivered gains of 19% as a group on the S&P in four weeks. Sarah, as a PM, what do you do now? Well, the three key drivers for energy are still in place. That's supply, tight supply, strong demand, and producer discipline in terms of being disciplined in terms of volume growth. But let's talk about these returns and how we're positioning from a global point of view. Look at refiners. This is an area that's lagged versus ENP. Refiners lag for a reason, and that's because they're more based on barrel growth rather than high oil prices. So a company like Valero is looking interesting to us right now. Uh, they just reported the quarter very well positioned, also focusing on renewable diesel, and, and they're disciplined. They're returning 40 to 50% of cash flow from operations as shareholders. They're focusing on paying down debt but they still have more upside than other energy stocks. A part of the strong year-to-date returns, even though it is our number one sector for the year, is due to the Russia-Ukraine situation. So as that, if that starts to settle, that could settle energy prices. But that elongated cycle based on the tight supply-demand balance and producer discipline should stay in place. And that does keep us bullish on energy, but more selective looking for the laggards in, for the rest of 2022. Sarah, how actively are you managing that energy portfolio given the increase in prices and given the fact that we might have already brought forward a lot of the gains? Well, for us, it's about remaining overweight energy, but switching around within the sector. So even though we like our EMP names, let's look for the ones that have been laggards like the refiner. So it's not about moving in and out of energy as a sector. It's we're bullish. We think there's going to be a long cycle here. We're long-term investors in that sense, but making sure within the sector that we're finding value and adding in, into those areas. When we think about finding value, valuations have come down in other areas of the market. We've seen a move in the numerator, in the P part. When it comes to the E part, what are your expectations for what's going to happen to multiples, given that earnings don't really seem to matter for the equity market, but in theory, they make a difference when we're talking about how much you have to pay for these companies? Well, our view on 2022 is that earnings will start to matter more because that's going to be the key to driving markets higher this year. We're not counting on valuations. We think those will be flat to down on the year, but earnings should start to shine through. And we're seeing that with these companies like Apple today. Uh, you know, the other key for the year is, of course, what is the Fed doing? They're hawkish, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of the bull market. Even with four to five rate hikes, the economy and strong earnings should be able to shine through. Now, from a portfolio positioning point of view, you need to be selective in this sense. Look for those companies in those tight supply and demand sectors like energy. And then to drive those earnings, the main lever is going to be pricing power. Companies which have the pricing power to overcome inflation will be able to drive those earnings and they should get rewarded this year. It's not going to be a year of a rising tide lifting all boats. Uh, it's going to be a volatile year. We've already seen that. But overall, we're still moderately bullish based on earnings growth. Sarah, can we talk a little more about the luxury players? Alfie MH in the news this morning. It's negative on the session. It was positive at the open. Last year, it had a massive year, up more than 40%. And in some ways, the numbers today validate some of that move. Fantastic numbers. Sarah, can you talk to me about the luxury names and whether you're positive, optimistic, constructive on that view going forward? We are positive on the luxury names. I think we've talked about caring in the past. Uh, you know, we think global luxury, driven by consumer balance sheets, which are very strong, is, is going to be a sector that plays out for many years. One thing that we like about companies like Caring and other global luxury players is it helps you dip your toe into China, which could be bottoming at this point without having to directly invest in the China. They have large exposure to the Chinese consumer, which we see as a growing area. So these are companies, not only dominant brands with a lot of brand heat, but exposure to the right regions of the world, but you have that backstop of that strong brand name that should continue to do well. Sarah, although we saw today, even after their earnings, LVMH is struggling and struggled to hold on to gains. It's now negative. You saw with Apple, Apple shares also struggling to hold on to gains down uh, more than half from the peaks of uh, in the intraday session. So how do you view this? When do you start to rethink your thesis on where your price target is, given the fact that the macro backdrop is so dominant? Yeah, I mean, the, the macro headwind on companies like Apple with the NASDAQ down double digits year to date is going to be an issue. The other thing with Apple for us is the short term versus the long term. And this might be what investors are somewhat starting to focus on. They've had blowout growth during COVID with strong iPhone sales, iPad sales, Mac. But if you look at the long term normalized growth rate for Apple, these, these products actually sell at much lower growth rates, even in the low to mid single digits. So how much demand has been pulled forward by uh, these consumers in terms of Apple due to COVID. I think that's the issue. Now on the other side of that, 200 billion cash on the balance sheet, spending over 20 billion on R&D. Just look at the metaverse for them. We expect their handset to come out, headset to come out next year, which could be priced at around $2,000 and have an elongated demand cycle. But you know, for Apple, there's a normalization that's going to happen there. And that could be start of, part of what investors are starting to see. And then of course, these macro headwinds from the Fed and from the move away from tech stocks is, is a negative for these companies. And that's an issue overhanging the markets. We don't think we're through it yet. Sarah Malik of Nuveen. Sarah, wonderful to go through the equity market with you. Thank you. Torsten Slock joins us now, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. Let's start with a really big question, Torsten, a question that I know you want to try and answer. How does this Fed engineer a soft landing? I think what the data here is telling us is, well, first of all, Omicron in December has probably putting a little bit more upward pressure, both on wages and also on inflation. But the big picture here is that as inflation continues to be elevated and will be for a little while longer, it is very critical that the market is beginning to price in so many hikes. If the market does price in uh, four, five, six hikes, uh, then, of course, the likelihood that we will get that soft landing that the Fed is trying to engineer just goes down. Why do you say that, Torsten? Because we have seen a sell-off uh, with respect to equity markets, but it hasn't been completely uncontrollable. And frankly, there hasn't been any sign of malfunctioning in the underlying mechanics of the market. That's correct. But remember, very importantly, I mean, what is the goal for the Fed with what they're trying to do? The goal really is 
to try to cool down growth. And that also includes to try to cool down revenue growth in corporate America. And that's very important when we think about it from an equity and a credit perspective, that the fifth goal is to try to cool down aggregate demand. And once you do that with more aggressive rate hikes, then it does raise the risk that in particular in the more cyclical components of GDP, such as housing, where psychology plays a really important role, it does become more challenging to micromanage that soft landing that they're trying to achieve. George Cervellos of Deutsche Bank put out a note this morning where he was talking about longer term expectations for where the Fed funds rate uh, will be and actually has come down significantly over the past couple of years that basically people are expecting the rate hikes to be baked in and then very slow growth after that. He's saying the best thing that could happen is for inflation to materially slow down the labor market to actually improve and growth to pick up. Otherwise, we could be hiking into a really weak cycle. What is your opinion on that? Do you sort of see things in the same way? I think that is a risk, but I mean, the, the bottom line still is that the growth at the moment, I mean, clearly when you heard Jay Powell yeah, a few days ago, he did not seem to worry about a slowdown. The signaling from them is clearly that when Omicron begins to subside, we will have stronger growth in consumption, stronger growth in CapEx, more people traveling, more people going to restaurants. All that should be generating more growth in consumer services. And with that backdrop, it, it, at least from a Fed perspective, it seems quite clear that they do not see a worry on the cards here in terms of the slowdown. While we're assessing this data, we also have to keep in mind we're getting more data later with consumer confidence at 10 a.m. Eastern time, Torsten. When we think about the consumer and their propensity to spend in fuel, therefore the American economy, are we going to start to see some demand erosion purely because of reduced sentiment, because of inflationary pressures and wages that aren't necessarily keeping up, and therefore some of the work will already have been done for the Fed? Yeah, this is very important, Katie. I mean, there's really a big difference between how the uh, Main Street looks at uh, inflation and the impact, whereas how uh, Wall Street and markets look at inflation. If you look at inflation expectations in break-evens, they have really stabilized and in some of the further out inflation expectations come down. Whereas if you look at the University of Michigan consumer sentiment, I mean, that is at the lowest level in 10 years. And if you look under the hood why that is, it is because people worry about housing becoming unaffordable, car prices becoming unaffordable, filling gas on your cars becoming unaffordable. So you're right, Kaylee, that on at least when it comes to the consumer, higher inflation is at risk of being more contractionary. And that's the challenge, of course, that the Fed has here that there are different ways that inflation is feeding in. But if you look also at the New York Fed survey of households asking, what do you think inflation will be in one year's time and in three years time? The answer to that is that households say inflation in three years time will be 4% and in one year's time will be 6%. Those numbers tell you that mainstream have estimates of inflation that are substantially above the Fed's 2% target. So there's certainly a difference in terms of how inflation impacts consumers and what the outlook is here overall. And the risk is, to your point, that it could begin to become more contractionary. And that's, of course, why the Fed is going, because they don't want inflation to become contractionary consumption. And we've been talking a lot this week about the Fed put, what the strike price is, if it has disappeared entirely, if the Fed really cares about turmoil in the equity market, but also to the point of consumers, that's real wealth that is being lost. How does that factor in here? Yeah, I think this is also very important because let's say that the Fed began to back off because all markets have gone a little bit in the last uh, three, four weeks. Then, of course, the fear would be that inflation would ultimately run higher. And if inflation does run higher, then the risk would be that consumer confidence would still start to go down even more. So that's why the data here at 10 a.m. is uh, very important and, and very interesting because this becomes very relevant exactly for this point that how are consumers going to react if inflation continues to be so high. And the fact also that 
the mainstream media is also reporting as the first news item uh, on inflation at the moment, it tells you how critical inflation and inflation expectations are. So from that perspective, the Fed doesn't have the luxury of doing, if you will, a Fed put and holding off and saying, oh, markets are off a little bit, so let's wait and see. I think the way the Fed looks at this is to look at financial conditions. If I look at my Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, which is real time on my Bloomberg screen, it still hasn't really tightened that much. So it's actually still positive, meaning it's still accommodative and supporting GDP. So the conclusion, in my view, still is that the financial conditions haven't really tightened enough, clearly, for the Fed to worry. That's also what Jay Powell, again, was saying earlier this week. Torsten, what tells us about where the neutral rate is? Is it the market that tells us that, or is it the economy? Yeah, so I know this is a little bit of, of a tangent to your question, but if you think about how the neutral rate on R-star is calculated, the models that calculate that, they don't even have a stock market. They don't have credit spreads. <laughs> but what the Fed talks about is financial conditions. They would like to tighten financial conditions, again, with the goal of slowing down growth in the economy, of slowing down corporate earnings. And the way that R-star and the way that we calculate in the academic profession R-star and what the, the, the terminal rate would yeah. be, does not include those parts of the real world, unfortunately. So the answer to your question is, I think the best guidance we get from the terminal rate in the dot plot, which says two and a half of the Fed funds rate. And that's probably a good guess at the moment. But what really is the case that if inflation really does take off to the upside, we could, of course, see a much higher number than that. The word calculation implies it's some kind of scientific effort. And the word <laughs> guess, I think, Torsten, is closer to the truth. Torsten <laughs> Slock of Apollo Global Management. The volatility is just dramatic at a time of such little uncertainty with respect to Fed policy. Right now, also, uncertainty on international relations with the conflict between Russia, the U.S., the alliance between the U.S. and Europe uh, in question. Joining us, we're so lucky to have Peter Trubowitz, professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and the Chatham House Associate Fellow. Uh, you know, I got to say, Peter, I'm looking at all of the noise that we keep getting out of both sides here. What does Vladimir Putin want? Uh, good to be with you, Lisa. I, I see this, you know, as a kind of classic Russian move designed to improve its geopolitical position by sowing division um, in the West and shoring up domestic legitimacy. You know, Soviet leaders played this card often during the Cold War, but, you know, with little international success. And I think that Putin thinks he can do better. And the question is, why now? And I think the answer to that is because the West is in a bit of a funk. Uh, and key Western leaders are in um, in political trouble. Biden's mm -hmm. approval numbers, as you know, are lousy. Boris Johnson's underwater, facing a possible no confidence vote in the coming days. France's Macron is up for election in April with shaky prospects. And the new German government is internally divided on foreign policy matters, including how to deal with Russia. So I think yeah. Putin is betting that this is an opportune moment to get that, you know, gain greater influence over Ukraine and its neighbors, stoke divisions within NATO and weaken America's position in Europe. I think that's what it's about. Peter, does he seem to be winning? Um, well, I mean, the first move was uh, very strong and over the top. I think much really right now depends on how he responds to the formal response that he received from Biden and NATO earlier this week, um, uh, you know, to his demand for kind of carte blanche security guarantees. And, um, you know, he could respond by 
um, ratcheting up diplomatic pressure. He could unleash, there's like a lot of chatter about this, cyber warfare in the Ukraine or worse, use the troops. I saw the New York Times today is reporting there's about 130,000 troops now positioned along the border there to launch a full-scale military offensive. If he does that, I think it's likely to backfire because I, in the sense that I think it is likely to unite rather than divide America and its European allies, it would make it very difficult for Western leaders to back down. And indeed, in some cases, I think actually politically advantageous to stand tall. And this is really why the situation is so fraught because on both sides, they can get themselves boxed in. Biden has to be careful. Putin has right. to be careful. Well, let's talk about President Biden, Peter. How has he played his hand so far in your assessment? Kelly, I think so far he's played a pretty difficult hand reasonably well. There's been a hiccup or two along the way. But I think importantly, just to go back to the last point, he's been careful not to box in Putin or himself. He's remained open to negotiating with Putin, even while he's rejected um, demands. And he's put contingency plans, of course, that you've been reporting about economic sanctions and so forth in place in case the situation rapidly deteriorates. Meanwhile, you know, I think he's consulted widely with, you know, America's European allies. So this is a far cry from what happened over Afghanistan back in the summer. Um, and um, and he's, he's managed to avoid, I think, looking too weak or too belligerent. He's kind of, you know, he's, so far he's found the sweet spot between them. There's some carping by the Republicans, but I, you know, at least for my London perch, they look too internally divided and as a result, pretty out of position at the moment. But that said, just to go back to the first question, the ball's in Putin's court, and we're going to have to see really how Biden and the allies handle what is going to be, you know, a return serve. How do you think China is watching as all of this plays out, Peter? Watching very carefully. And, um, you know, in a way, uh, they're, 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 I'm sure they're spending time sizing up the U.S., the German response, the British response, and what it might mean in another theater that is in the, mm -hmm. in the Asian theater. But I think in some ways, you know, they're in a, a kind of the catbird seat with this because they watch Putin uh, do kind of all of the dirty work with respect to kind of trying to divide the Western alliance. And they're able to just kind of sit back and, you know, they've kind of got his back, presumably, if more sanctions are imposed and so forth. But I, I think they're in a position, you know, they probably don't want Putin to do this in the middle of the Olympics, though he has a record of doing stuff around the Olympics, um, as he's done, you know, as he's done before. But I think in, in general, um, I think they're just watching this play out. Um, they're in a position where they get to play kind of the the honest or trying to play the honest broker. Yeah. Everybody needs to tone down and so forth. So, well, Peter Trubowitz, thank you so much, Peter Trubowitz of the London School of Economics. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight 
from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.